Hey folks, this is an unprecedented time, so I just wanted to say something quickly before I jump into this episode. First off, I recorded this episode specially for this time. This conversation is about dealing with uncertainty. It's about finding a grounding and a baseline of gratitude and gratefulness for your life that supersedes what's going on around you and what's going on externally and what's beyond your control. I know for a lot of folks, we really look to have as much control as we can in order to find peace. And when an event like this happens, all of that gets thrown up in the air. And that can cause a lot of fear and anxiety. So this episode is specifically about that. If you find this helpful, share it with others. There's a lot of people feeling this way right now, and I hope that this conversation can really help with that. Lastly, I'll just say, as alone as you might feel right now, with social distancing, with removing yourself from your day-to-day life, this is actually an unprecedented moment where there are billions of other people all feeling the same thing and going through the same thing at the same time. It's perhaps the first time we're globally going through something together like this. I just hope this is a moment for us to recognize our interconnectedness, our togetherness, and our need to support one another. So if you're sitting there in your apartment or your home or wherever you are, remember that there are billions of other people doing the exact same thing right now. And chances are, if you're listening to this episode, you're in a much better position than a huge majority of the people out there who are truly struggling. So as much as you think about what you need to do for yourself, also think about what you can do for others. Remember that in the greater consciousness, we're all connected. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Now with Steve Rio. On this podcast, I seek to define what it means to live a good life. How do we stay connected and aligned with our values and our purpose? How do we prioritize what's most important to us? And how do we optimize and make the most of the time we have in this life? Today's conversation is with Christy Nelson. Christy is the executive director of A Network for Grateful Living, who you can find online at gratefulness.org. Christy has been working in social justice and social impact her entire life. Though life events in her 30s led her to focus more on personal and individual transformation work, where she's worked with an impressive list of people and organizations like Lynn Twist, Soram Gorhammer, Brother David Standelrast, and the Kripalu Center for Yoga and Health. I wanted to sit down with Christy to talk about the current situation with COVID-19 and how we can better manage the uncertainty and change it's brought about in our lives. Christy has become master of managing through the unknown and has so much wisdom to share in this area. Throughout the conversation, we reference her book, Waking Up Grateful, which is available for pre-order now on Amazon. You can find links to that and a number of other resources in the show notes at Nature of Work. Dot co forward slash Christy. That's K R I S T I. 
I hope you enjoy the conversation. And if you do, make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. And if you could take one extra minute and rate and review this podcast, that would be incredible. You can follow me on Instagram at Steve Rio. And if you're interested in learning how to increase your performance, resilience, and well-being, check out Nature of Work. It's a personal operating system to help you live life to its fullest. You can find us online at natureofwork.co. Otherwise, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Welcome, Christy. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you. It's great to be here, Steve Rio. I reached out to you because I've been obviously watching everything that's going on as we all are. And um, we're recording this right in the sort of, I feel like the, hopefully the apex of this coronavirus um, situation. And I, beyond the physical situation that's happening with the virus and people being sick and, and response to that, I think there's a lot of, well, there, there's just a tremendous amount of anxiety and uncertainty. And I felt like you were the right person to to have a conversation with in the midst of this. And I, and I was waiting to come out to New York to come see you in a few months, but I don't even know if I'm going to be out there. So, um, I just wanted to get, just do this. Yeah. Thank you. Um, carpe diem. Seize, let's seize the moment. And, uh, we have no idea what's going to happen now. So I'm thrilled to be here and, uh, there's no moment that would not be the right moment with you for me and to have these kinds of conversations. I think, it's just hugely important. Yeah, thank you. And this is also, you know, the first uh, remote episode I've done. All of my episodes have been in person, um, mostly because the nature of the conversation is is intimate. Um, but you and I have a relationship where I feel like we're going to get there. We've already gotten there. So, <laughs> yay! I wish I was in Bowen Island with you, or that you were here with me. But this, I love being able to connect deeply and in these days of physical distancing, not to accept the limitations of being socially distant or emotionally distant from each other, that there's really got to be ways that we can create these bridges meaningfully and sustainably. And this feels like a great exploration of that for me. Yeah. I thought your, your partner just mentioned that you're, you're, you're calling it physical distancing, not social distancing to remind people that to stay socially connected and and that you don't need to feel isolated, um, even if you're physically isolated. Yeah, that's that's a a commitment in life anyway. And I think how even in our most solitary moments and in the circumstances of life that really take us away from one another physically. How do we feel connected in those worlds, in those moments, in those times? That's a great contemplation and really worthy of our consideration now in the deepest ways and experimentation, exploration, creativity. We have to figure out how to stay really deeply connected to ourselves in the times of fear and to each other in these times of kind of absent a particular physical proximity, right? So that I can't be physically close to you. How do I stay close? And then also being connected to perspective and to larger forces at play that we never have to be cut off from any of those things, no matter what the conditions of our outside lives are. Yeah, that's beautiful. 
so it's early on a Sunday morning for me here, but I opened my email to check if you had sent anything through, but I saw the gratefulness word for the day this morning. And I just want to read it. I think it's pretty perfect uh, for this conversation. The quote is, there are no guarantees. From the viewpoint of fear, none are strong enough. From the viewpoint of love, none are necessary. It is the best quote. I rejoiced when I saw that one. It's kind of a I think it's a maxim to live by, honestly, right? So, yeah. And so that's the word for the day, which comes from gratefulness.org. You can sign up and get one of those kind of quotes in your inbox every day. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a great way to start, mm-hmm. start you. your day. Um, so we'll start with, um, there's a lot I want to get into around grateful living and the concept of gratefulness, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get there pretty fast. We've already gotten there. I want to start, though, just with a little background on you. Um, you've worked with, you know, the Center for Mindfulness and Medicine. You worked at Kripalu Center for Yoga and Health. You've worked with Lynn Twist. Um, you've worked with Sorum from Wisdom 2.0. And now a network for Grateful Living. All of those are really deeply purposeful vocations um, and roles. Has your work life always been in that area, in these areas? I know there's different areas there, but. Yes, Absolutely. Uh, I'm really lucky. I was raised in a family where social purpose and social action were central in our lives. My dad was very active against the Vietnam War. We grew up with civil disobedience in our lives. And I, I had really strong social conscience. And so for me in my teenage years, I was arrested for civil disobedience. I mean, you can call that a purposeful life. Um, I was on trial for chaining myself to a nuclear power plant. Um, I was very politically active. I marched a lot. I was in Washington and New York City um, for all the big rallies. My work was also really involved with that in the 80s. And I was involved with citizen lobbying around environmental issues Um, I worked at the Peace Development Fund, which was, you know, organizing grassroots groups around the country uh, on behalf of peace issues and disarmament. And so my first 20 years of work or so were really in that realm, social change and a much more traditional definition. And then I would say it really changed in the 90s for me to be involved with what I call spiritual social change, which has kind of been this new iteration of purposeful work for me. So that has wrapped itself much more around the idea of individual transformation and community transformation being the cause around social transformation and global transformation. So looking at the role of the individual, uh, in how we come to realize our vision of the world that we want to occupy. Yeah, beautiful. I, I um, I think that's the path that I've take. I've, I'm, I'm leading into now in the next iteration of my life as well, which is going from social. I worked in a lot of um, eco justice stuff and climate change and all these big, broad social justice and environmental issues and things like that. Mm-hmm. But I find myself more and more drawn towards the, the um, inner transformation work. Right. 
Yeah. And I, w- I would just, let me just say, so I love that about you. And we've taken different trajectories because we're, we've been on the planet in this incarnation, a different number of years. Um, so being born in 1960, what that looked like was a particular path. And I think one of the things that I was always really aware of is that it was very palpable to me at some point how anger, um, and I won't just use, cause I think there's a really important place for anger in life. Um, and you know, I don't know what that is yet, but I just said that. So it must be true. And we can talk about it later, but you know, that there's a place for, um, there's a place for standing up and taking a stand. That's really important. Uh, and that's different than, how I saw a lot of activism happening in my earlier life, which seemed to me at the expense of our connectedness to one another. And so, and in our connectedness to ourselves and to some larger world. So there was a lot of harm being done in the name of making the world a better place. So that just rises in my awareness right now in this conversation as, as one of the reasons why it felt so important to me to figure out work that would tend the whole being and didn't um, come at the expense of any one of those facets of the inner world and the outer world and where they met. Right. I think we're seeing that right now as people are facing, you know, the natural major issues that we have in the world right now. And there's always issues in the world that we're trying to improve and fix and change, but we're seeing so much divisiveness between people. The internet is really really created a lot of polarization. Um, you see that in, in, in governments and politics, you see that in identity politics and the way people are identifying with issues so strongly or with their, their tiny niche of identity so strongly that they can't resonate with anyone else. Mm -hmm. And we can't really make progress on these issues. Um, so it strikes me that starting with the self, starting with the inner transformation, being coming from learning to come from a place of love in the face of adversity or in the face of challenges or in the face of difference, difference of opinions and things like that is a very key thing that the world needs right now. Uh, absolutely. And I remember an interview I heard somewhat recently, which was about the transformation of the grandson of the founder of the KKK. Um, so, and this young man who had gone to college and was ostracized, you know, when people discovered who he was and he was, a, you know, I'm sure people can find out about it, but it was a very profound interview because he was on there with this young man at college who befriended him, who was Jewish and invited him over for satyrs and made space for love to rise and to heal and transform in this place of connection between the two of them. And if they had stayed in that universe, the nexus of politics never would have ever resolved. There would have been no bridge. And yet it was about a human to human connection. And so not being caught in the politics of identity or Mm -hmm. partisan self-definition, or here's my, here's what I'm pushing against in the world and here's what you're pushing against. Boy, we don't agree. So there's no place for us to find each other. So those kinds of opportunities are so powerful, but they only come 
when we ourselves can lean in to one another and lean into conversations and make space to ourselves be changed as much as wanting having the agenda for other people to come around to our opinions. And it's so rare that we hold the space of how can I shift internally? How can I make room to become a different person as a result of an open encounter, a conversation that I'm going to allow to change my life? Mm -hmm. That's a radical way to go through life. I talk to a lot of young people who are trying to find purpose in their work or find something to work on that feels meaningful to them. And they feel, it strikes me that they feel very disconnected from what's important to them. They might not really understand that or know that or know where to start to look for that. Um, but if someone's sitting on the sidelines of purpose, perhaps in their work, how do they start? The difference between how I used to think about the answer to this question and how I think about it now is located in the pondering of what makes you come alive. What makes you come to life most fully? What brings you alive? What engenders that sense of being activated and enlivened in your own life in this way, and that there is purpose, right there is to be found, right in the centerpiece of those moments is what I think is really purposeful for any of us at any stage in our lives. And also recognizing that that changes over time, that, and that's a beautiful thing. And, and so the only way to really know that is to, to have a practice and a way of being that keeps us attuned to what it is that's making us feel most alive. Yeah, so it's it's um it's a it's a feeling and it's actually a lot simpler than a perhaps an intellectual pursuit of trying to pick apart what your purpose is or define it in words. Exactly. I mean, I've certainly gone through all those exercises are really valuable. What are your core values? What are your core beliefs? What are your principles? These are really important things, but I think mostly we know those things much better than we know what makes us come alive. You know, if someone were to say, um, you know, write down your top five values, uh, or the top five things that you're for and the top five things you're against and what you believe in and what you don't, we know how to do that because it's a heady proposition for the most part. And sometimes it comes from the heart. And But I think there's something else, which is what makes you come so alive into life that you just want to cry. <laughs> I mean, I I think there's a place inside each of us that's pretty untapped. Um, and there are really deep-seated answers to those questions about how we want to show up for life that are super vulnerable. And that may not be what we've been taught purpose is meant to emanate from it. Yeah, it's very it's very watery. It's very powerful. It can be kind of scary to live in that place because often we're cracked open. It's very heart centered, and in there lives a lot of what I'll say is information, but it's not mental and it's not cognitive and it doesn't process through those filters. It it processes much more through um, alignment you know, around aliveness, I would say. 
Yeah, it strikes me that you're just you're talking about a deep listening to yourself mm-hmm. um, that I think is very hard for young people and for everybody in today's world because there's a lot of distraction which takes you away from any chance to listen that deeply. Yeah. Um, and to and be, that it starts there. Yeah. And to be, um, agreed to be impacted, to allow ourselves to be permeable, to not just listen, but to be porous and changed by the listening. That's the state of being cracked open that I'm talking about. And in that place, I think, comes a lot of uh, really important knowing, inner knowing about what makes us come alive and therefore what's purposeful for us. But it's that willingness to be very um, broken open that we have to commit to first. And that's also to be with silence, to be with our own silence, to be with silence with other people requires that courage. And do you think about legacy at all? Like, is legacy something that is present in, in your mind, in, in your work, in your life? It is. I think legacy is how I live my moments now. I love that idea of legacy is not what you leave behind. It's what you do in the moment. And so you only live behind and leave behind what you're doing in the moments of your life as it is. And it's not this calculated equation of, how do I want to be remembered as much as how do I live now every moment so that when I'm no longer here, which can happen in any moment, I could evaporate. Um, and <laughs> I know I know that really well, that that no matter when I've left behind the legacy that I want to leave by how I'm living every moment that I want to live. And, and the one thing that I know is love is the most assured thing. Having lost people who I really, really care about, their legacy is so carried on in me, not by what they did, but by how they loved me and I love them. And that's my assurance always that if you're loving well and letting yourself be loved well, you don't need to concern yourself with your legacy. It's already assured. I agree. That's that's lovely. It's interesting. It's a, yeah about being very present in the moment. And if you're present in the moment, you don't need to worry about the future or the past or anything else. And the same thing with legacy. I talk a lot about that in the form in 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 terms of helping people think about um all these goals they've set for themselves and all these things they're trying to achieve and measuring their life by some future outcome versus if you're just focused in the moment on what you're passionate about and doing your best, then those things will be fine. Those things will turn out. That's um, right. And you're talking about legacy in very much the same way. Yeah. I think it's also challenging, you know, to be really honest, you know, you had a dream of doing this podcast. And so there's things that we have to do in life that require us to invest towards a future moment, even if it's a near future moment? And how do you really enjoy the process, the whole process, and that it's not towards the product or something which we may never actually ever get to, 
Um, so you don't compromise the moment in order to get to someplace. But there's that balance place that's really perplexing that I think is really important to acknowledge, which is, you know, I remember when Stephen Levine came out with all the books, If You Had a Year to Live, there was this whole movement around imagining a year to live. And and I think what a lot of people do if they don't know that they're going to live a long time is just, well, I'm just going to be here just for the moment. And there's a tension. I think there's a paradox in that that's important to name that's actually energizing, which is I don't want to invest only in the things that have future orientations. And I don't want to just live in this kind of a way that abandons an idea of the future. So where does that rest? Where does that live for me? And I think that's a really awesome place to go in our consciousness on a regular basis to really consider deeply. That's exciting to me. Yeah, I guess if you if you abandon any sense of future, then you're also abandoning depth and purpose in the moment. I think it's a cool tension to just figure out how to hold that. I feel it for myself a lot. I think the most <laughs> the most exciting things are ineffable. So, you know, what I'm saying is, you know, to be with that ineffable quality of wow, this moment is everything. And yet abandoning an idea about the future is also really uh, challenges my ability to be in this present moment in some way that that has more gravitas to it or more depth and meaning or purpose, as you might say. So just holding that, just where does that want to invite us? That's a great question. Yeah, I think that's been a question for me over the last two to three years, it's been a major part of my contemplation and my meditation and, and all those things is, is I've always been a very ambitious, trying to do all the things person and, and really trying to balance that with, well, what does that mean for my day today? Mm -hmm. What does that mean? I'm Mm -hmm. going to have to commit to doing today and give up today for some future ambition and, um, not being, not being attached to have things that you're working towards, but not being attached to the outcomes is a really it's a challenge. It's a very interesting, it's a dynamic that, yeah, it's a, it's a dance Uh, in your life besides all of the work and besides strapping yourself to nuclear reactors, you've had some (laughs) pretty intense um, moments with your health uh, moments with um, personal discovery and things. I'm interested what, what stands out for you as the defining moments of your life? There's a lot in a lifetime obviously for any of us and the the biggest before during and after kind of moment in my life was being diagnosed with stage 4 cancer um and that you know when we talk about my work history and it taking a particular form and then there was a juncture and there was a transformation and what might have brought that about i wouldn't necessarily tie it directly to this experience, but I think it's pretty clearly tied to this experience of facing my mortality, um, dancing with death, whatever you want to say, looking at the possibility at 32 and 33 years old of that being the end of my life and really 
making a big space in myself for that possibility. So that was, it was a turnaround that is pretty unparalleled in my life and has contributed to purpose to where I am right now or to what you would ask like about a role or what, what seeks to be embodied in me is always the honoring of that experience because it feels like it just begs to be honored and not forgotten. And it reminds me of a friend of mine going through cancer at the same time. And I just, I kept saying, this is changing me. This is changing me in ways that I will never be the same. And she said, you just watch, you'll be the same again. You'll, you know, you'll go back to being exactly how you were. And I knew that I wouldn't. And I knew that I wanted to continue to harvest that experience for everything that there was for me to learn about life from that and to allow it to be expressed through me for as long as I would live, not knowing if that was going to be days, weeks, months, or years. And geez, it's now been 26 and a half years, which, <laughs> you know, I've, I've lived so many of those moments like, um, they say angels dancing on the head of a pin, you know, that it's like this ridiculous consideration, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. And I just thought, oh my God, I'm just dancing on the head of this pin. And I have no idea I'm living acutely. And that was my idea of it's not chronic. I'm not, I don't see life as a chronic condition. It's an acute condition. Here I am and I'm breathing and who knows how long this is going to live. And, and it's, really stunning to be able to say that I've lived that way now 26 and a half years. Mm -hmm. That is just wild. Do you consider that experience a gift in your life? I, I only consider it, if you had asked me in the moment, <laughs> you know, that's always a good question. Mm -hmm. In this moment, you know, I think that we all have the right and the ability to look back on aspects of our own lives and determine that that something that was really, really difficult and painful and resulted in a great deal of suffering, that we choose to relate to that experience as a gift. It's not something anybody else ever gets to tell us as a gift. <laughs> I'll take a stand for that. Um, nobody. Um, and yet that also was prevalent in, you know, it's like there was the assumption that you chose, you know, that, that, that you chose suffering for a reason and that, that you know, that things, um, that everything had a reason and that I don't subscribe to that belief, but I believe that when I look back on what I went through my life has changed profoundly as a result of how I regard that now and that I believe that experience has so much to teach me and mm -hmm. that I continually allow it to teach me and inform how I live my life. And that is a gift. Yeah. Cause uh, you, you look at any of the ancient wisdom traditions or you look at um, stoicism, which has become very popular and they all instruct you or suggest to you to look very closely at, at your own death in order to recognize the gift of life. 
Um, and you are, you know, without choice, <laughs> given, given that opportunity or that, you know, res- you know, you're forced to do that. It would never have been something I would have chosen consciously at that stage in my life. And yet the experience taught me so much that I think that there's a place, you know, this idea of, of how the paradox of the more that we embrace the fact of our mortality, the more alive we become, that there is something really, really true about that. that I think a lot of people are registering in our culture you know, a lot of our Western cultures are becoming so much more intimate with death and intimate with impermanence and embracing, you know, kind of death friendly, where people are recognizing that that which we push away comes back to bite us and that we live lives running from things if we don't turn to face them. And Mm -hmm. so now with death cafes and all these, you know, death dinners and you know, in our culture now, I think there's a lot of space that there's been in more in Eastern traditions. It's um, starting to come back maybe. Yeah. I th- I think there's a real interest in, and in young people, younger people in looking that squarely right in the face, right in the eye, looking death in the eye. Right. And, and those, in your experience through those years, um, I didn't know this about you until we chatted earlier, but you, um, quote unquote, came out after that whole experience. Like you, you, you you said, I think you used the words, had the courage to fall in love with another woman. Um, But in your, in your forties. In my forties. Yes. Yeah. Going through that experience, obviously reoriented you around the, the, the power or the importance of living your truth in a way that you hadn't yet Mm. recognized. Is that true? So what's interesting is when you brought this conversation up just now on the heels of talking about death, all I could think about was I could only make this decision to love the woman I'm in love with right now if I let something die. So that was what occurred to me when when you began asking the question and I thought, oh, this is... Uh, this is an unusual transition, but no, maybe it's exactly right that there's something about courageously facing and letting go what needed to be let go of. And what's important is that it wasn't about being truthful about who I was, Steve, because I think that's really important. I had never identified as a lesbian. I'd never, I had been married. I'd been with men all of my life in terms of all of my intimate choices. Um, And then I met someone who opened my heart in a way and I, it blew my whole life away. And what was radical for me was in that moment, it actually took a while in those many, many moments of being willing to let go of form to say, not what form is this love being delivered in how is this for, how is this love coming to me? What's the body that's bringing this love? What's the gender that's bringing this love? It's, it became about the quality of the love itself. And that required for me letting go of all of the trappings about who the other person was, who, who my partner is, who I was, that was what had to be let go of because I didn't have some place where, Oh, I'm now dipping into 
this deep truth about me that's always been true and I've always had this kind of registering. It was what's being presented to me in this moment as an opportunity by life that I spent a bunch of time saying no to because if only you were a man, you'd be perfect. Right. Oh my God, I said that. If only you were a man, you'd be perfect for me. And then at some point, I cracked open to the larger possibility that I was being invited into that required me to be willing to let go of all of my social constructs, all of my constructs about myself, all the social goodies that came from being heterosexual, all of what anybody else thought about me. Wow. It was just, it was, can you die unto all of that for the sake of love? Yeah. Ego death. Boof. Yeah. Whatever you want to call it. I, again, that was nothing I would have consciously chosen, you know, in a certain way, but it was about, are you willing? And if life is presenting you with this, are you ready? Can you say yes to something that's so outside of all of your ideas about yourself and life and love and everything and the images you've had about where, so that was a a rebirth in a certain way, you could say. And in order to be reborn unto aspects of ourselves that are previously entirely unconceived, we have to die. Yes. I didn't expect you to go there. And it's such an amazing reflection on on the on your experience it's interesting separating from the identity that we have with our body and other people's bodies and connecting with consciousness in a way and with the soul in a way that strips away like you say those all these layers of conditioning that you've built up your entire life that society's built up that you've built up that your family's built up all of these things to see through all of that to just see love purely exactly Exactly. Wow. And, and to leap into that invitation. It was like standing on the edge of a cliff and um, <laughs> all those points of hesitation. I mean, there was so much fear and there was so much concern and there was so much trepidation and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And it reminds me of when I was young and I lived um, near this pond that had a huge um, rock outcropping. So it was, um, and, and it was like standing at the edge of that cliff and then going, okay, okay, I'm going to jump. Okay. No, 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 no. Okay. I'm not going to, okay. I'm going to jump. Okay. I'm not going to jump. And so I'm going back and forth, back and forth on the edge of this gigantic kind of cliff that was overhanging this thing. And then once you step off, you're, you're, it's like, it just takes that moment. Oh my gosh. Wow. And I have that literal sense of um there haven't been many times in my life where it's really taken that much courage but when you take flight i just remember kind of both feet leaving that big i don't know if it you know it felt like it was 100 feet above the water it was probably about 20 30 feet above the water but you know you're both your feet take off and then you're airborne and there's no going back. And it's like, then you just go up and up. And I jumped over and over and over the rest of my life. But that first time was so hard to jump. Um, and that's a great, a great felt sense to remember in the physical body. Yeah, what a release. Like, what a what an opening. 
Yeah. And I think that's really available to us so much more than we think about in life. I think that, that there are ways to live life that say yes, where we say yes over and over. And it doesn't matter how many times we go back and forth and back and forth and have that trepidation. And that's part of the process. And to really honor also all of the ambivalence or the whatever is there that wants to be fully honored. And then also to honor that the feet want to leave the ground and they want to be up there. And so I think there's ways that that saying yes to life is inviting us a lot more often than we're paying attention to. Mm -hmm. And that excites me. That compels me a lot to think about what it would be like to really tune into those, those offerings and those invitations much more fully and much more frequently. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's so, it's so true in all aspects of your life um, to recognize that there is an infinite number of choices and paths you can take and to really tune into what your path is and to follow it um, without fear, because you see, you just see people, you see those people that just truly lean into life in a way that, and, and they, and they are able to step away from or step through the fear and, and just unlock unbelievable things in their life and unbelievable experience and depth that's otherwise, that's otherwise buried there somewhere. I agree. And what I'm also feeling drawn to say in this moment is that if we don't honor all the place that fear wants to be tended, that we're also never, I think the, the key thing is to also tuck fear in, like to really, to, 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 hold the place that fear also wants to live and teach us. And so many of us, I think we have an idea in mind about what a really purposeful or courageous life would look like, what a purpose-driven life. And it's, and it's all this clarity. And what we feel is confusion, or we feel fear, or we feel um, ambivalence or trepidation. But I think unless we bring those things really close and extend that radical hospitality to all the things that are present, that's what will teach us courage. Ultimately, how can we say, okay, I'm just going to jump right over fear and trepidation and ambivalence and not knowing and all this stuff because that courage is on the other side of that. No, I think courage is about honoring everything that's right there. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. You can't, you can't just um, ignore it or jump through it you have to work with it. You have to, you have to go, lean into that, into that fear and see what's there in order to transform through yeah, it. Yeah. There's no bypassing. Right. I think we've talked about so much of this already just in your personal experience, but your, your work is also right now all focused around this idea of gratefulness and grateful living. You, you are the executive director of a network for grateful living, but also you've been working on a book for the last two years around Grateful Living. And it's going to be coming out in the fall, but I think um, pre-sales are coming pretty soon. So we'll talk about that in a bit. But I read I read through the um, uh, some of the, the content you sent me, and there's so much that's very relevant, I think, to how people are feeling today, especially in the sense that um, in the wake of the gratitude movement being very mainstream right now, this idea of, of always... Um, 
looking for things to be grateful for. So looking for external factors to be grateful for or things that you have to be grateful for. When something like this happens in the world, we have this pandemic thing and everything suddenly feels very uncertain. It shakes up the foundation for people on how are they supposed to continue feeling okay. And and one of the one of the big sections, uh, one of the things you talk about in the book that I love is 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 this idea of uncertainty. And um, do you mind if I just read a couple of sentences? Mm, I love it. Thank you. So you say three months, uh, and so you were talking about before you were actually diagnosed with cancer. You there was a there was a pretty long period of not the doctors not being able to figure out what was happening for you. It was nine months. Yeah. And so this is, this is inside of that period. And you're telling your story, you say three months passed and I was no wiser about what was wrong with me. I had no answer from doctors or the medical system. I did know, however, what I was experiencing, feeling and coming to understand. I felt a strong desire to let go of pursuing a definitive answer. I felt a call to let go of an inherited internalized belief that everything could be known, would be known and should be known. Surrounding the quest for uncertainty was both terrifying and empowering. I learned to see hope as an unconditional orientation to life that called on me to bow to the one truth of which I had become certain. There is a mystery to life that is more vast and promising than what is knowable. So I really love this because I, I do think that for a lot of young people and with the internet today, it feels like all of the information is there, so we should know and be able to control and have certainty around all aspects of our life. But I, could you speak to that? Mm. I think there's a tyranny, which is that we should be able to know and that we get to know everything that's true. You know, that there's this kind of way that we've become arrogant, I think, in our culture about this idea that everything can be understood and if it can be broken down into the smallest molecules that we will understand everything. Um, And, you know, I love science and I think science is incredibly important and I'm just absolutely praying that we're going to come up with solutions for so many of the things that are plaguing our world these days. And that will come from a longing to know and understand right? There's no doubt about that. And it's not about putting that asunder. It's more about how do we live our lives, every single moment of our lives in the face of how much is not knowable. And it's not about looking on the positive side of everything. It's about what's that right relationship to knowing and knowing when there is actually a time for a fast, like kind of a media fast, not turning away from truth, but turning inward so that we can have greater capacity to greet the truth that is there. What do we each need? And really asking those questions so that we can honor ourselves and honor the situation best. And it looks different on different people. And I think going away from this idea that it's all knowable and there's one prescription is, I think, really helpful and important. Yeah, it's, it strikes me that what's happened in the last Two weeks, like you said, two weeks ago, here. I mean, in in China, two weeks ago, it it was a completely different story than it was here. But now, suddenly, we're experiencing some of the same situation. And one of the things it's done is unravel the illusion that 
we are in control or that we know everything there is to know or that we have complete certainty around our outcome, like what tomorrow is going to look like or what next week is going to look like. And that's very um, challenging for a lot of people right now. We never knew what next week was going to look like. And so we're right face to face with that right now. You know, panic and fear can really disconnect us from love. And that's what concerns me most of all, is I notice even in myself how easy it is to get impatient, how much more in these kinds of times um, when things are so uncertain, it's easy to be more short-tempered or or um, tighter, to hold ourselves tighter, to hold other people tighter instead of really letting the heart kind of be bigger and lead us more here. So there's generosity and kindness and that we actually have a way to heal things in the midst of this by our own choices and our own behavior. Um, and to know what, what can't be taken and what's needed and what's called for each of us, I think is a real question of tuning deeply in and asking ourselves those questions over and over again, because things are changing all the time and they always are changing. They always were changing. So the idea that something was fixed and now it's not an illusion. So how do we keep having those practices in life that remind us what really matters? And that's what grateful living is for me. You know, remembering those things is really important. Yeah, that's beautiful. It, it, um, talking about decoupling our security from our certainty and there's a great relief and freedom when you can do that because if your if your well-being is all tied to your certainty or a fixed set of parameters existing or happening around you um i don't know that there's ever a way to truly feel secure exactly right exactly right and that yeah that's where we are right now that's perfect beautifully said this idea of security and certainty being so tied into one another and how do we navigate and negotiate security inside ourselves and in the lives that we're living absent a sense of certainty? That's the age old question Hmm. that takes us right back to, to the kind of real meaning of the matter. Yeah. And staying close to the, you know, one of the principles in the book, there's five principles around grateful living. And one of them is life is a gift. And getting very, very close to each day and each moment being important and beautiful and and that there's wealth in those moments, even if things around you are, you know, maybe your work is uncertain or someone you're worried about your health or someone else's health or these things, that there is there are still beautiful gifts in the moment. Mm. And life is an unexpected gift. It's an uncertain gift. It's that is inherently every day we wake up, there's the gift again, but it's not something that we get to know that we get to count on. Oh, I've got this gift for exactly this long and this, and here's the conditions of the gift. There's a lot of uncertainty inside receiving that gift, um, being aware of that gift. And I think returning to it over and over again is where, life gets so much richer when we don't take it for granted, when there really is that place of, oh, I'm still here. Wow. And what is there to do about that? What's the opportunity that comes in that awareness um, versus what's going to happen tomorrow? And I don't know. And I never will know. 
And it's interesting, it's interesting, Brother David was really awakened to this in his teen years, I think it was his teen years uh, during the Second World War, being in environments where there was literally bombs dropping around him constantly. Um, and then he made it through that that period and recognized that staying close to that connection with life was so critical and that living gratefully was was sort of the the way he started talking about it. And that was many, many years ago. Um, and that we have these, these wake up calls that help us alert to this. Um, you have, you, you have, you've had your wake up calls that we've talked about in your, your personal health, a lot of, a lot of young people, you know, and then societally we have these major work wake up calls, but the last, I think the last major one that I could think of in the, in the Western world in North America was maybe nine 11, which was 2001. So a lot of p- young people, even if you're 30 today, you were a 10 year old at that time maybe you had some connection to that or there, I'm sure there was some resonance to that, but you weren't fully aware of that. And so this could be for a lot of people, the first time they're experiencing something that is large kind of worldwide happening to them without, without any sense of um, way to control it. Um, And maybe the first time that there's a lot of people having for the first time that shakeup saying, actually as much control as you, you believe you have, there are larger forces at play here. We are part of a, a greater system here that we we have to bow to in some way. And I think each of us finding our own way in relationship to that is really important. And one of the questions that occurred to me as you were talking was, how does uncertainty bring us alive? So, you know, that's an interesting question because there's, something very paradoxical in certainty and how it's kind of deadening and how predictability, what does that do to the life? You know, like when things feel rote and nothing feels new and we, you know, there's something that we also are often, you know, yearning for in our lives, which is this sense of promise and possibility. And all of that rests in not knowing all of that energy rests in not knowing and not knowing how we are meant to also inform the possibilities for the future. So not knowing how we're going to be called to act, how we're, you know, so I think there's something there that is really important to remember and affirm, which is how does uncertainty in this moment offer me greater aliveness? Where can I respond to that? What's the opportunity in this that is yearning for me and and to enliven uncertainty as opposed to making it feel so threatening all the time, that's very much in our hands, I think, too. Because as I said, kind of any, and you said as well, any idea to the contrary is an illusion. We don't know what's going to happen and we never did. But now we're really face to face with it in a way that how are we going to be in relationship to that not knowing, I think is really on us right now. Yeah, in the book you talk about aliveness on a scale, which I think a lot of people perhaps have never considered that they just think, oh, I'm either alive or I'm dead. <laughs> right. As opposed to there 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 being a, a, a scale of aliveness, of, of awakeness, of um presence to the moment. And that only comes from the highs and the lows. That if everything is just tugging along kind of status quo, that it's hard to feel that level of aliveness, perhaps. There's something about what we accept as our 
baseline or our status quo that I think has to do with how awake are you? How aware are you? How alive are you? I think there's something really beautiful and meaningful about saying, can I drop deeper, just a little bit more present? And what's going to emerge from that? What arises in the face of my being more present? Can I be a little more attuned to this moment, to what's being called for? What would that look like and feel like? I think aliveness can scare us sometimes. And so we tamp it down. There's something about really coming alive that is about cracking open and facing everything that we were talking about, kind of life so wholeheartedly and with so so much vulnerability. Aliveness is vulnerable. Just am I willing to come more alive? Yes. Will I make mistakes in that? Yes. Will it be awkward? Yes. Will I fumble? Yes. Will I be afraid? Yes. It's yes <laughs> to all of it, honestly. And that's that yes is aliveness to me. And in the book, you have so many great um, exercises and questions and ways for people to um, to incorporate this practice of of grateful living into their life. And I'm just wondering if 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 someone's listening to this and they are really struggling with the level of uncertainty that they feel or that this the sudden shakeup that they're feeling with everything going on, is there is there um a particular practice or question or something they can do that comes to mind for you right now um, from the book that that they could draw from? One of the things that helps me a lot is remembering the larger arc of history. So I think we often forget and feel really caught in the moment that we're in and that we are part of a long historical arc and a huge global family. And that human family rests in so much not knowing alongside us that we're not alone in not knowing and that we've never been alone in not knowing that all throughout history, how much has been unknown, everything that's worth anything has taken the willingness to turn ourselves over to all of what is unpredictable and all of what remains unknown. And that we are part of the human family in this. We're not separate. I think one of the reasons why this social distancing is so hard right now is because it's as if we're all supposed to be in this little bubble and that sense of separation versus belonging I think when we feel that sense of belonging, it helps to heal a lot of what is hard about uncertainty. And so for me, that really helps. And then I put my hand on my heart a lot just to connect with my heartbeat, to feel that I think it's really important, even in physical distancing, to connect with your own body, to connect with yourself, to connect with your heartbeat, to connect with your breath to use those things as a form of stilling and calming um, and then connecting to ourselves and each other in all the ways that we possibly can. And that's an act of defiance in a time of fear that makes us want to stop loving in some way and stop loving life. So whenever you can hold love, it really displaces fear. It's like the weight of love is just so much greater than the weight of fear. And so to just continually insist on 
being that embodiment of love, being an expression of love, um, fiercely holding fast to love inside yourself, inside your cells. That feels to me like a grateful living practice. You just mentioned these two things. This We're at this interesting paradox right now where, where what we need to do to try and knock down this virus is to create physical distance from one another. And this virus, I hope and I think, is opening us up and reminding us of our interdependentness, uh, our, our interdependentness as a human race globally. And um, it's interesting that we're wrestling with this idea that, oh, like I think some people are coming alive to this idea that of just how connected we are and how important our connection is. And, and maybe that is because we're being forced to remove ourselves and suddenly we realize how hard that is for us. I, I, it's making me feel very emotional. Just, I think the question of, <clears throat> there's a question now, which it's not, what do I need? It's occurring to me. It's not just what do I need? It's where am I needed? How am I needed? When things, when systems start slowing down and stopping, it's a really powerful reminder about how much we take for granted and rely on in our lives. And to have heightened awareness and appreciation around that is a gift. Mm -hmm. Wow. So we've talked about so much uh, today. And uh, the way that I end every episode is talking about and asking about what it means to live a good life. Um, and, um, I feel like in many ways, this whole conversation has been about that and about being alive to that and about awake to that. And, and my experience with grateful living has been that it is one of the best ways to really embrace a good life and to recognize the, the beauty of life. Um, but how would you answer that question? What does it mean to live a good life? I think the idea of a good life is awakened for me when I am most awake to every single moment as an opportunity and every single day as a gift and learning from everything that unfolds, that nothing can take us away from the ability to learn and nothing can take us away from the ability to love and nothing can take us away from loving our moments. A good life feels radical to me to live it from my heart as if everything really, really matters because it does. A good life is connecting really deeply with what can't be taken from you. I love the idea that nothing can take love away from any of us. That's it for today's episode. If you enjoyed it, make sure you subscribe wherever you're listening. And you can follow along with my life on Instagram at Steve Rio. For show notes and other info about the podcast, check out natureofwork.co forward slash podcast or find us on Instagram at natureofwork.co. And if you'd like to learn more about how to increase your performance, resilience, and well-being, how to increase the quality of your work while lowering the stress and anxiety you feel, definitely check out Nature of Work. It's a personal operating system that has transformed my work and my life, not only the quality of my work, but how I feel every day. 
And with that, I'll leave you. Enjoy the rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.